the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If your tastes happen to run contrary to the standards set by the Christian group that you associate with in these specific areas, then you will be labeled as worldly. Whether you are or not, you'll be labeled as worldly. Welcome back to Verse by Verse Radio, where we seek to teach the truth of God's Word in a consistent fashion. We're studying the book of 1 John and looking at the tests that the Bible gives to help us know that we are authentic believers in Jesus Christ. Our teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. The church's ministry is built on the kind of teaching you are hearing on this radio broadcast. If you are looking for a church home, come by and visit us sometime. The church is located in Clearwater, right between US-19 and the beaches. Have you ever thought about inviting a friend to listen to? Now here's Pastor Steve with today's Verse by Verse. We resume our study of 1 John by continuing to examine what I referred to last time as one of the most uncomfortable passages of Scripture found anywhere. I'm referring to the passage in 1 John where John commands us not to love the world. So let's turn there. 1 John chapter 1, chapter 2 rather, verses 15 through 17. John says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh The lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now, these verses may make us feel a little bit uneasy, uncomfortable, because we're not always sure if we're guilty or or not of loving the world. It can be challenging. The subject of worldliness is at times difficult to get a handle on because loving the world deals more with inner attitudes than it does with outward actions. And we know this because that's how John defines the things of this world in verse 16. He speaks of it as lust. That is to say, they are the inner cravings of our sinful hearts rather than simply the external deeds that we do. Now, they involve external deeds, obviously, but the root issue is the inner cravings of our sinful hearts. And notice specifically how, how John explains, how he defines the things of this world, and he, he calls it in verse 16, he calls them the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Now, this view of worldliness is contrary to the way that many Christians see it. In fact, it's very different than the way many Christians see it, because there are many believers who think that worldliness can simply be defined as living outside of a certain code of standards set by the Christian community 
that they identify with, whatever that community might be, whether it be a a church, a school, an organization. And so in their thinking, if you venture beyond the boundaries of those standards established by that community, you must be worldly. And if you stay within the borders of those standards set by that community, then you must be spiritual. Therefore, to people who think this way, worldliness is really quite easy to spot because worldliness is essentially reduced to a number of things, such as the kind of music you listen to, the style of clothes that you wear, the sort of entertainment you enjoy, and the type of luxuries you possess. If your tastes happen to run contrary to the standards set by the Christian group that you associate with, In these specific areas, then you will be labeled as worldly. Whether you are or not, you'll be labeled as worldly. But folks, based on what John teaches us in this passage of Scripture, we need to understand that worldliness cannot and must not be reduced to following a set of arbitrary standards set by some church group or Christian organization. Because loving the world, note this, is a matter of the heart. A matter of the heart. And that's why discerning the sin of worldliness can at times be very challenging because it demands that we examine our hearts. It demands that we examine our desires, our motivations, and and question why we do what we do. Otherwise, if we don't do this, we can become guilty of equating worldliness with these arbitrary standards. And usually what we do is we put it on other people. We don't see ourselves as worldly. We see others as worldly. Based on this type of legalistic interpretation of worldliness, my wife Michelle was instructed a number of years ago at a wedding that she was singing at not to hold a microphone to her mouth while she sang. And when she asked why, she was told because that was worldly. Because that's the way worldly entertainers did their singing. That's performance. It's not ministry. There was no concern about the heart. It was all a matter of how close you held a microphone. On another occasion, my dear wife, who has really taken the brunt of some of these things, and if you want to feel sorry for her, you can. But on another occasion, Michelle was questioned by actually a guest speaker at this church many years ago. And if you ask me who it was, I will not tell you. But it was a guest speaker at our church, and Michelle came in. She was wearing a blue jeans skirt, and he said, blue jeans to church? And the implication was very clear, that is worldly. Now, folks, that kind of understanding of worldliness is not only nonsense, it's unbiblical. It's unbiblical. And those who define worldliness by these types of cultural and arbitrary standards not only are engaged in the wrong battle, but they completely miss the point of what John is teaching in this passage of Scripture, what he's teaching on the subject of worldliness. They're fighting the wrong battle. That's silly stuff. And in doing so, they become, and watch this, this is important, they become very vulnerable and susceptible to being worldly themselves. They don't even realize it. Because their focus is on the wrong things. You see, in in focusing on external actions rather than the internal attitudes of, of your heart, it's very easy to lose sight of the importance of guarding your heart against 
real worldliness as John defines it. And what often happens is you become a policeman in the Christian community, spotting people who you think are worldly. That we want to continue studying this passage of Scripture so that we understand precisely what John is teaching here, what he means when he commands us not to love the world or the things of the world. And our objective in understanding the subject of worldliness is not so that we can accuse others of being worldly, but so that we can guard our own hearts from being worldly. This is a command for us. This is a command for us not to love the world, not to be those who watch and make sure everybody else is in conformity to this. So there are two important foundational truths we need to understand. First, if we are to make any sense out of what John is teaching here. Very, let me quickly review because we went over this several weeks ago. First of all, we need to understand the primary reason that John is, is even bringing up this issue of loving the world is because he's presenting this as one more test to give true believers the assurance of their salvation. Remember, John has centered his entire letter really around one basic theme, 1 John 5.13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is John's objective. John is writing to a church, perhaps even more than than one, we're not sure, but he's writing to Christians who were troubled about their salvation, troubled about the assurance of their salvation, because they had teachers who came in, we call them Gnostics, they they based their philosophical views on, on a certain knowledge. They thought they had more knowledge and enlightenment than anybody else. And they essentially said to these dear Christians, because we have this supreme knowledge, the superior knowledge that you don't, we don't really think you're Christians. You're not one of us. We are the elite. And so you have a whole group of Christians who are now troubled about their assurance. And these false teachers, these Gnostics, have moved on, as we'll see in a few weeks, because John says they went out from amongst us. They were not part of us, and they've left us. But they left behind troubled Christians. So John has written his letter in order to help these Christians to know that they can know that they have eternal life. And so he gives them a series of tests. If you pass this test, if this evidence is true in your life of being a real Christian, then rest in this great assurance. So far, we've seen several tests. In chapter 1, he spoke of the test of confessing your sins. True believers, not only will they not deny that they sin, but they will confess it regularly. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. True believers recognize their sinfulness. And the more you grow in Christ, the more sin you see in your your own life. That's the paradox of the Christian life. The more mature we are, the less mature we think that we are. But true believers regularly agree with God, this is sinful, this is wrong. I not only confess it, and that's what confess means, to agree with God, but I repent of it. I don't want to continue like this. I'm going to forsake this. That's the first test that John gives us. If you pass that test, you can know that you're a real Christian. The second test he gave us was in the, at the beginning of chapter 2 when he spoke about obedience to the word of God. Verse 3 of chapter 2, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Keeping here means a watchful eye. It means observance. It means you make an effort. You desire to obey the word of God. Not that you perfectly obey it, 
but that you desire to perfectly obey it. Even when you fail, you are always keeping watch. Your, your life's goal, your, what characterizes you, what defines you is a desire to obey the Word of God. When you come upon a command in Scripture, the question that you have is not, should I do this? It's, Lord, what should I do? How exactly shall I put this into practice? But there's never a question of whether you're going to obey or not. That's the test of desiring to obey the Word of God. If you have that desire, it's because you've been regenerated, because God has given you a new nature. That new nature desires to obey. The old nature, the sin nature, does not desire to obey. That's why the unsaved have no interest in obedience to the Word of God. John, after this, gave us a third test, and that is, do we love the brethren? Do we love the brethren? If one says that he loves God, but he does not love his fellow Christians, John said he's a liar. He's a liar. How can you love God, who you don't see, and not love Christians, who you do see? So, those are the three tests that we've seen thus far. Now, John gives us a fourth test, and that's the test of worldliness. Worldliness. If you don't pass this test, then you have to say, I really don't know Christ. If you do pass this test, then you say, I really do know Christ. So, what John is saying here is essentially this. True believers do not, on an ongoing habitual lifestyle way of going about their daily walk, love the world. Understand that. We're all tempted to love the world. And believers at times do love the world. We find it very seducing. We find it very alluring. John is not saying that we're never tempted. John is not saying that we never fall into sin in the area of worldliness. John is not saying that believers never have, if, you'll, if you will, have affairs with the world. What he is saying is that that's not characteristic of us. That's not where we are. That is not our habitual lifestyle. If we fall into it and do cross the line, we repent. We repent. See, that's the difference between a non-Christian and a true Christian. When a true believer is made aware that he has ventured into the sin of worldliness, he recognizes his sin, he confesses it, and he repents. He does not continue to love the world or the things of the world. But understand this, that is not the case with a non-Christian. Unbelievers are very, very comfortable loving the world. They're comfortable with the world and all that it has to offer. They have no interest in changing. They have no desire to deny the desires of the flesh and cease from worldly indulgences. And if you speak to them about this, they'll think you're crazy because that's what they live for. That's all that they live for, pleasure themselves. So understand that John's main point here in this passage is to teach that true believers do not love the world as a way of life, as a way of life. We've been saved out of this world and all that the world stands for, what Paul referred to as the kingdom of darkness in Colossians 2, verse 13. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We no longer find it appealing like we used to. We no longer want to be there. It's a paradox. We're tempted by it. We can be seduced by it, but we really, in our heart of hearts, it doesn't appeal to us like it used to. Now, if that's your attitude, then it's just one more piece of evidence that you have been converted to Christ and that you 
indeed are a true believer. And you can be assured of that, and that's really the point of this book and the passage. Now, that's the first foundational truth, to understand why John is even writing this, to give you assurance, and if you're not a believer, to expose you, to expose you. If someone here were to say, you know what, I don't even know what you're talking about. I love the things of this world. I'm not concerned about changing, then that person is not a Christian. If you get convicted by something, you say, I'm going to make changes, that's a great indication that you are a believer. Now, the second foundational truth that we need to understand as we come to this passage is how John is using the word world in these verses. He's using it in a very specific way, a very pointed way. He is certainly not referring to the physical world because we are to appreciate the world that God created. He created it for our benefit. He created it for our enjoyment. He created it so that we would look at nature and give him praise. We are certainly not to hate the world in the sense of the physical world. Secondly, John is also not referring to the world of people in the sense of humanity. That's the world that God so loved that he gave his only son for. We're not to hate the world that God gave Christ to love and and expressed his love through the cross. So he's not talking about that. Then what is he talking about? The world that we are commanded by John not to love is the world's evil system. It's an evil system that is opposed to God in every way, in philosophy of life, in values, in ambitions, in desires, in standards, in attitudes, in views of life and death. That's the world that we're opposed to. It is the world that is headed by Satan, who is called in Scripture the God of this world, the prince of this world. And if you think, well, that's just hyperbole, it's not. Because in the temptation, Satan offered the kingdoms of this world to Jesus. He obviously had, has been given by God the authority to do this. He said, it's all yours if you'll bow down and worship me. He is the God of this world. And everything he stands for and everything this world stands for is hostile towards the Lord, and towards his truth. John actually defines the world for us in this sense at the end of this letter, 1 John 5, 19, when he said, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's a great way of defining it. The world lies in the grip of Satan. They may not realize that. I don't think they do realize that. But it's under the control of Satan. In other words, It is the world of rebels who live without any thought of God, totally independent of God, because they have rejected his ways in order to follow their own ways, which without realizing, without realizing it, are actually the ways of the devil, even though they may not personally believe in a devil. Now, the Apostle Paul gives us some insight on the way of the world when he speaks in Ephesians chapter 2 about the way we all were before our conversion, he speaks of the fact that we used to follow the course of this world. Those are the words that Paul uses, the course of this world. That is to say, there is a definite path, a definite course that the world takes that characterizes them, characterizes the system made up of unbelievers. And what is this path that the world of lost and rebellious sinners take? They pursue anything that brings them pleasure. Simply that. That's the way of the world. Greed, selfish ambition, and deceitfulness. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Lovers of self 
It is a world that cares only about themselves, getting what they want, whatever brings them the most satisfaction and pleasure out of life. So, having established those two foundational, critical truths about worldliness, why John is writing this to give us assurance, and also the world that he's addressing is the world system that is opposed to Christ. Now we're, we're ready to study this, ready to move on. The world that lies in the grip of Satan. However, having said this, I do think it's important to realize that this passage also helps us in our Christian walk. There's some definite application here because it reminds us not to give in to temptation to have an occasional fling with the world, of which we are all very vulnerable. See, although we may not love the world as unbelievers love the world, we can have, as I said, from time to time, inappropriate, if you will, affairs with the world. Affairs that hurt our testimony, affairs that rob us of joy in Christ, affairs that bring dishonor to the Lord. You and I know many Christians who at times have have fallen into love for the world. In fact, Paul spoke of a colleague of his. He said, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present age. Now, Paul may have been saying Demas has proven that he was not a believer at all. But the point is that there are people who claim to know Christ, who, who look like they knew Christ, who may indeed really know Christ, but they're robbed of their testimony and joy because of falling into worldliness. So even if you're a Christian, worldliness is a problem that we have to be on guard to fight. We have to fight to avoid because the world constantly tries to seduce us. Seduce us. And you can't leave. You can't even go to a monastery because you can't, you can't leave yourself behind. It's you. It's me. We're the enemy. So as we go through these verses tonight, we want to keep this sanctifying aspect in mind concerning worldliness. Now, what will help us in this personal fight about loving the world, as well as help us to discern if we really do love the world as an unbeliever or just a struggling Christian, is to see why we are not to love the world. Because John doesn't simply say, don't love the world. He actually lays out for us in these verses three reasons why we must not love the world. So he gives us some some substantial reasons for not loving the world. Three reasons. We're not going to actually, I thought we would finish this passage, but I got so wrapped up in this, we'll just have to stretch it out a little bit. Three reasons not to love the world. Last time we studied this passage, we looked at the first of these reasons, and I'll quickly mention it to you. It is this, love for the world and love for the Father are incompatible. Incompatible. Notice, The end of verse 15, where John says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Having commanded us not to love the world, John gives us now a reason why we must not love the world. Because if anyone does love the world, it's obvious that the love of the Father, meaning his love for the Father, is not in him. Essentially, what John is saying is that the person who loves the world with with a habitual and continuous affection, it's in the present tense here, so that's what he means, without any remorse or any conviction that it's wrong or any desire to change, that person is not saved because that person obviously does not love God the Father. In other words, habitual love for the world and habitual love for God cannot exist in the same heart at the same time. It is impossible. Can't. 
And there is a reason that it's impossible. You see, when a person is converted to Jesus Christ, he receives a new heart. We've talked about that many times. Peter calls it a divine nature. The Old Testament calls it a new heart. It's a new heart, and that new heart loves God. Loves God, as opposed to the old nature, the sin nature that hates God. Therefore, his love for God drives out his love for the world. Because his new heart has new godly affections, affections that he never had before. These are the very things that he used to love, but he doesn't love them anymore. He doesn't have the same attraction to them. They don't appeal to him anymore. In other words, true Christians evidence the reality of their conversion by no longer loving the things that, as pagans, they used to love. We are the world. We are our own worst enemy. If we could close off the outside influences in our lives, we wouldn't be better off, because we still have the inside influence of the world that is ingrained in us through our own sinfulness. Pastor Steve has sure been talking about where we all live. I'd like to invite you to listen to this message again on our website, versebyverseradio.org, or you can also listen to previous messages in the series. You can call us at 727-239-0306 for prayer or help. Don't forget to tune in again next time as we continue the series on the tests of worldliness. For all the staff, I'm Jerry Pruden saying, we look forward to being with you next time on Verse by Verse. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.